the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. I hope you had a great weekend. I had a great weekend at the Cannon Beach Conference Center, the first women's conference of the fall season. Uh, hanging out with friends, helping to lead worship. It was a great weekend, and I hope you can say the same. Well, today on the program, we are going to uh, recognize what was actually last Friday. I wasn't here, so I think it bears uh, talking about today, the 234th anniversary of the Constitution. In other words, Constitution Day. We'll talk about that in just a moment. We're also going to uh, hear from Glenn Sunshine. He's the co-author, along with Jerry Trousdale, of The Kingdom Unleashed, How Jesus' First Century Kingdom Values Are Transforming Thousands of Cultures and Awakening His Church. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. Lots to talk about. I hope we have enough time to cover it all. But first, uh, Friday was Americans' uh, celebration of the day the founding uh, of the Republic signed the U.S. Constitution. That was September 17th, 1787. Well, Constitution Day was once known as Citizenship Day. It commemorates the U.S. Constitution. On that day, the delegates of the Constitutional Convention met for the last time to sign the document they had created. The original states, except Rhode Island, collectively appointed 70 individuals to the Constitutional Convention. In all, 55 delegates attended that convention session, or sessions, I should say plural, but only 39 actually signed or were able to sign the Constitution. The delegates ranged in age from Jonathan Dayton, who was 26, to Benjamin Franklin, who was 81, who had to be carried to the sessions in a sedan chair. Well, many of the delegates involved in writing the Constitution credit God for what the document became. For example, Alexander Hamilton, the founding father who began work with Reverend James Bayard to form the Christian Constitutional Society to help promote the two things which Hamilton said made America great, Christianity and a constitution formed under Christianity. For my own part, I sincerely esteem it a system which, without the finger of God, could never have been suggested and agreed upon by such a diversity of interests." I wonder if that made the, uh, the very popular play, Hamilton. James Wilson, signer of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and a Supreme Court justice appointed by George Washington, said Christianity is part of the common law. George Washington, first president of the United States, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. John Adams, second president and first vice president, said our Constitution was made only for moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Benjamin Franklin, founder, an author, printer, political theorist, politician, postmaster, scientist, inventor, humorist, civic activist, statesman, and diplomat, said this, 
God governs in the affairs of man. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it possible that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this. I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. The Constitution established a limited government that requires the people to be self-governed for the system to work. It is essential to study the Constitution so we never forget the foundation of enduring principles found therein that give birth to America and sustain us and challenge us to assume our rightful role as self-governors. Well, in other more current news, Pfizer said today that It's COVID vaccine, COVID-19 vaccine works for children ages 5 to 11, and that it will seek U.S. authorization for this group, this age group, very soon. It's a process the FDA has to engage in. The vaccine made by Pfizer and its German partner, BioNTech, already is available for anyone 12 and older. But with kids now back in school and the extra contagious Delta variant causing a huge jump in pediatric infections, many parents are anxiously awaiting vaccinations for their younger children. Now, conversely, many parents are not. Over the past nine months, hundreds of millions of people ages 12 and older from around the world have received the COVID vaccine, Pfizer points out. We are eager uh, to extend the protection afforded by the vaccine to this younger population, subject to regulatory authorization, especially as we track the spread of the Delta variant and the substantial threat it poses to children. That's a quote from Pfizer CEO Albert Borla. For elementary school-aged kids, Pfizer tested as much uh, a much lower dose, a third of the amount that uh, that's in each shot given now. Yet, after their second dose, children ages 5 to 11 developed coronavirus-fighting antibody levels just as strong as teenagers and young adults. Uh, Dr. Bill Gruber, a Pfizer senior vice president, told the Associated Press. So they're receiving a dose that's uh, about the third uh, about a third of the level of adults, and that spread in two shots. So uh, together, those two shots equal a third, not two shots, each um, being a third. The safety profile and immunogenicity uh, data in children aged 5 to 11 vaccinated at a lower dose are consistent with those we have observed with our vaccine and other older populations at a higher dose. That's a quote from the co-founder of BioNTech. He's the CEO. Now, while kids are at lower risk of severe illness or death than older people, more than 5 million children in the U.S. have tested positive for COVID-19 since the pandemic began, and at least 460 of them have died, according to the American Academy of Pediatrics. Cases in children have risen dramatically as the Delta variant has sweep, uh, swept through the country. Pfizer said it studied the lower doses in 2,200 kindergartens and elementary schools school-aged kids. The FDA required that uh, required rather what is called an immune bridging study, evidence that the younger children developed antibody levels already proven to be protective in teens and adults. More on that as the FDA will take up the question of whether or not this will be made available uh, to young younger people. Meanwhile, Joe Biden and his uh, handlers love to assert that they are simply following the science when it comes to defending their COVID policies. However, as many conservatives and others, uh, not just conservatives, PhDs, African-Americans and others truly following the science observe its uh, political gamesmanship in many cases. Well, the latest instance of um, politicization came a couple of weeks back when the president announced boosters would be offered to all inoculated Americans aged 16 and up. 
While the lasting effectiveness of the novel COVID vaccine apparently diminishes over a mere few months and just as the Delta variant has caused a spike in new cases across much of the country. Well, a pretty sizable wrinkle was thrown into that plan when a U.S. Food and Drug Administration advisory panel overwhelmingly voted against a booster for anyone under the age of 65, except for those with a high risk of serious disease. The 18-member panel voted 16 to 2 to reject recommending the booster to younger, healthier Americans, though the panel did vote 18 to 0 in favor of recommending a booster to Americans 65 and older. So there you have it. Apparently, that's the science. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. A reminder coming up in the second hour of today's program, Glenn Sunshine, who is the co-author with Jerry Trousdale, The Kingdom Unleashed, How Jesus' First Century Kingdom Values Are Transforming Thousands of Cultures and Awakening His Church. That's coming up at about a quarter after the second hour of today's program. Well, the House will vote this week on a measure to suspend the nation's $28 trillion debt ceiling before the federal government runs out of cash to pay its bills in October. Well, in a letter to colleagues on Friday, House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer said Democrats will vote on the debt ceiling as well as a must-pass stopgap sending bill to keep the government operating past the 30th of September. It's unclear whether the two measures will be linked. Well, the House Rules Committee is meeting on Monday, well, today, to draft a continuing resolution to extend government funding through early December. Decoupling government funding from the debt limit could help ensure the uh, stopgap bill's passage with more Republicans willing to support a temporary funding bill that includes billions in disaster aid to help recovery uh, from Hurricane Ida. Well, at the same time, Democrats may lose some political leverage if they don't tether the two measures together, which could force GOP lawmakers to go on record and vote against the stopgap spending bill, forcing a government shutdown. Democrats say uh, they're still undecided on the matter, but time this week will tell. I don't think that decision's been made yet. That's a quote from House Budget Chair John Yarmuth, a Democrat from Kentucky, during an interview on Sunday. We have several options for raising the debt ceiling, which is absolutely mandatory. You might recall Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. She's repeatedly warned that without congressional action, the U.S. could default on its debt sometime in October, potentially triggering an economic catastrophe. But lawmakers are engaging in a game of brinksmanship over the debt. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell last week rejected an appeal from Yellen to suspend the cap on how much the money, the uh, how much money rather the government can borrow. Let's be clear with a Democratic president, a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate. Democrats have every tool they need to raise the debt limit. It is their sole responsibility, he tweeted last week. Republicans will not facilitate another reckless partisan taxing and spending spree. So that gives you a bit of a preview of what's to come. Well, if the U.S. failed to raise or suspend the debt limit, it would eventually have to temporarily default on some of its obligations, which could have serious and negative economic implications. Interest rates would likely spike and demand for taxpayers or rather treasuries would drop. Even uh, the threat of a default can cause borrowing costs to increase. The U.S. has never defaulted, not once. Yellen wrote in a recent Wall Street Journal op-ed, doing so would likely precipitate an historic financial crisis that would compound the damage of the continuing public health emergency. Now, it's so interesting to me that Congress increasingly over the years has waited and waited until the last minute to do its fundamental 
uh, jobs. They're doing all kinds of things that fall outside of the basic responsibilities they have. But doing this um, seems to fall at the last of a long line of of, uh, projects that they are working on. It's rather sad. Well, uh, Betsy McAfee writing about the uh, uh, the the three point what is it three point five trillion dollar spending bill says this the humongous bill that the Democrats in Washington are assembling this week is a slap in the face to Americans who work pay taxes and support their families. The bill demeans work ethic and glorifies government handouts. It sends a message that work and self sufficiency are for suckers. Better to climb on Uncle Sam's gravy train. That will now provide cradle to grave benefits. The social spending bill will give monthly payments to almost all parents based on how many children they have, regardless if any in their family works. Democrats are also promising virtually free child care until kids reach age five, free community college and near the end of life, new Medicare and elder care benefits. The bill also includes 12 weeks paid leave each year for anyone who claims a family member needs care. These freebies are rolled into one massive bill that is allegedly expected to run about 10,000 pages and, of course, will likely go unread by anyone, including your state's representative. Why the rush? Under the U.S. Senate rules, they have only one shot to pass a bill before the end of the year. Uh, With their slim majority, the Democrats don't have a mandate to transform America into a European-style welfare state, but they're determined to move the bill through anyway. Uh, They're eyeing the 2022 midterm elections, which is when they could lose power. Many of us uh, feel this is the biggest opportunity we will have. That's a quote from Representative Don Beyer. He's a Democrat from Virginia. It's vote buying on a grand scale. Well, the bill pours money down a, um, well, a virtual rat hole. It allocates a whopping $45 billion to make community college free. Students won't have to spend even a dollar on tuition or fees or pursue a course of study that prepares them for work. Earnings. Most students don't finish community college within two years. Currently, 42% of community college students graduate within four years. A big reason is a lack of academic skills when they enter Um, Nothing in this uh, program will change that. One of the bill's costliest items is paid family leave with an estimated price tag of $225 billion over 10 years. It's the mother of all family leave plans. Benefits are paid by the federal government based entirely on an employee's word that a family member needs care. No doctor's note or medical records required. Even the self-employed are eligible. It's an invitation to big-time fraud and a nightmare for small business that would have no hire to uh, uh, replace on short notice and yet still keep the job open for the employee on leave. The overall bill is being touted as a way to reduce poverty. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi brags that extending the monthly payments to parents will cut child poverty in half. Well, not necessarily true. Or nonsense, as one writer put it, government entitlements don't cut poverty or improve mobility for poor children. A working parent does. Well, this bill lacks incentives to work. Senator Joe Manchin, a Democrat from West Virginia, is urging a work requirement for parents to receive their monthly payments. His party should listen. House and Senate committees are racing to finish drafting this gigantic bill, but what's needed is public input. Most Americans don't want to swap the American ideal of success through hard work for government paternalism, but that's what the bill does. The U.S. already has a generous social safety net, including federal programs to subsidize housing, food, child care, college, Medicare, and even cell phones for 
the um, uh, low income. Democrats are also trying to get green cards for 8 million illegal immigrants and make them eligible for the benefits of the bill. Now, a judge has since said that you cannot put that in the uh, reconciliation bill. So that is no longer a consideration. Europe demonstrates the dismal results of a declining work ethic and ever expanding government entitlements. Europeans have a lower gross domestic product per capita because they work fewer hours. They have to settle for smaller homes, fewer households, appliances and conveniences and a lower material standard of living which may not be all bad. Everything Europeans manage to buy is laden with hidden taxes to support their caring governments. Working class Europeans are heavily burdened by their taxes. That is the choice Americans face. Adopt European style entitlements and the suffocating taxes to pay for them as socialist Bernie Sanders wants to do or work hard and have more spending money to buy what you and your family want. Now, this is the choice. And the sad thing is, I mean, there may be a large swath of Americans who would prefer that model, but most of us won't have an opportunity to read through the 10,000 pages of this spending bill, minus two or three pages having to do with amnesty. And the lawmakers who will be voting on it will most likely not have had the opportunity or have the uh, uh, incentive, if you will, to have read it either. But this is supposed to be uh, taken up sometime this week. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez donned an elegant gown with a slogan, Tax the Rich, painted on the back at the Met Gala in New York last week, where guests selected by Vogue's Anna Wintour uh, ponied up around $35,000 a pop for uh, tickets. Well, the scene was reminiscent of Tom Wolfe's radical chic, uh, though rather than being guests of the well-heeled in Park Avenue duplexes, today's revolutionaries own luxury condos, drive around in government-subsidized electric cars that most Americans mm-hmm. could never afford. My final question, though, is this. Who doesn't want to tax the rich? Judging from social media, there seems to be a growing segment of people under the impression that the wealthy pay little or nothing in taxes. When you ask Americans if they support a wealth tax, a majority support the idea. One recent poll found that 80 percent of voters were annoyed that corporations and the wealthy don't pay their fair share. Polls rarely ask people, however, what a fair share looks like. Is a quarter of someone's earnings enough? A third, because the rich have been shouldering an increasingly larger share of the cost of government. The United States already has one of the most progressive tax systems in the free world. Those who make over $207,350 now pay 35% in income taxes. Those who make $518,400 or more than uh, or more rather pay a 37% income tax rate. At some point, taxation should be considered, well, theft. Well, we're going to take a break when we come back. We'll talk about despite the fact that despite perceptions, the highest income strata of taxpayers are the only ones who pay a larger share of taxes than their share of income. More on that when we return. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Just before the break, we were talking about the fair share. There are all sorts of polls that ask people what a fair share looks like. Well, actually, they don't ask that question. They just um, uh, suggest that the wealthy should pay the fair share. Uh, is a quarter of someone's uh, earnings enough? A third, because the rich have been shouldering an increasingly larger share of the cost of government. The United States already has one of the most progressive tax systems in the free world. Uh, those who make uh, $518,000 or more pay about 37% in income taxes. That's their rate. At some point, taxation 
uh, has to have a cap on it. Well, despite perceptions, the highest income strata of taxpayers are the only ones who pay a larger share of taxes than their share of income. In 2018, the top 1% of income earners made nearly 21% of all income, but paid 40% of all federal income taxes. The top 10% earned 48% of the income and paid about 71% of all federal income taxes. On the other hand, in 2021, Americans making less than $75,000 are projected to have, on average, no tax liability after the deductions and credits. The average income tax rate for those making between $75,000 and $100,000 is expected to be 1.8%. More than 61% of Americans, around 107 million households, owed zero federal income taxes for the year 2020. Now, you don't have to agree with, uh, with the idea that overtaxing the wealthy undermines job creation and growth or that a tax system that relies heavily on the fortunes of the few creates more cronyism in Washington and more volatility everywhere else. But the idea that the rich don't pay their fair share, well, it's pretty absurd when you look at the actual numbers. At this point in the conversation, uh, some will set aside their calls for a wealth tax and start complaining about capital gains. Well, here we simply have a point of disagreement. Ocasio-Cortez would see investment profits in the hands of Bernie Sanders, head of the Senate Budget Committee. I would rather see them in venture capital projects and private equity funds than churn investment dollars and boost technology and jobs. Progressives grouse about accumulation of wealth and then want policies that dissuade risk. Well, those who believe... um, that that's not the, uh, the the right approach will be accused of being market fundamentalists or beholden to the wealthy. Progressives, often the kind that um, hang out at the Met Galas, believe everyone is as uh, class obsessed as they are. But not everyone is. Anyway, the numbers are significant when you're considering who's paying what and what's a fair share. Well, stocks swooned on Monday. Investors fretted that the government of the world's two largest economies, China and the United States, could act in ways that would undercut the nascent global economic recovery. Well, the sell-off started in Asia and spread to Europe before landing in the United States, where the S&P 500 fell 1.7 percent, the worst one-day slide since mid-May. It would have been worse were it not for a late rally. The index was was down rather as much as 2.8 percent in the afternoon. The Chinese government's unwillingness to uh, step in and save a highly indebted poverty, a property developer just days before a big interest payment is due signaled to investors that Beijing might break with its longstanding policy of bailing out its homegrown stars. And in the United States, investors were worried that the Federal Reserve could soon begin cutting back its purchases of government bonds which have driven the sharp rebound in the stocks and helped prop up corporate profits since the coronavirus pandemic. Well, before this month, Wall Street was um, enjoying a seven-month run that had lifted stocks more than 20% as investors seemed to shrug off any bad news. But there has been a clear shift in the market's tone since the high on the 2nd of September, and it worsened on Monday because of the spiraling debt woes of uh, Evergrande, a vast Chinese real estate business, business rather, that struggled to meet its obligations, worrying investors there and around the globe. Again, Wall Street suffered the worst drop since May as global markets are swooning. Well, the Oregon legislature, looking a little closer to home, will gather for a special session to take up redistricting. That starts today. The process which decides who will represent Oregonians on the state and federal level, happens every 10 years. On the federal level, 
Oregon is getting another representative in Congress because the state's population grew. It's the first time in 40 years that's happened. Well, the new representative needs a district and people to represent. Well, the task of drawing or redrawing that new district allows for a change to other district boundaries as well. It should matter to you because if, uh, for example, you love trees and right now you're grouped with a bunch of other voters who also love trees and your representative loves trees, then uh, you have a voice in Congress. But what if under the new map and new district boundaries, you're suddenly lumped in with a bunch of different voters and they love flowers more than trees? Well, none of that should actually matter. The The interests of constituents shouldn't be the deciding factor in drawing lines, but that's essentially what it's come down to. Under federal rules, each district in the state has to have the same population, give or take one person or so. And that's important not only to Oregonians, but also to the state's political parties, because to the political parties, it's not about um, how many people there are in the district. It's about how those people vote. And politicizing the process is what you expect politicians to do. Each side wants to protect what they have and maybe erode the other side just a bit and gain something in the process. Well, in Oregon, that means Democrats want many of the districts connected to the highly Democratic voting uh, Portland area. Take a look at their um, proposed congressional maps, and it's easy to see how many parts of the map touch the greater Portland area. There are two versions. There's the Democrats proposed congressional map and there's the Republicans version of the proposed map. You can find that uh, online. According to the website 538, the Democrats proposed map would create five mostly safe seats for them in Congress and one safe seat for Republicans covering much of eastern Oregon. The Republicans, on the other hand, would like to protect what they currently have as well. So watching the political machinations going back and forth over the next few weeks um, will tell you something about the priorities of those in Washington making the decision to redistrict the state. Now, the Democrats are in the majority in the state of Oregon, so they will probably hold sway. But we'll have to wait and see what actually happens and where those lines will ultimately be drawn. In other news, Defense Chief Austin says he has confidence in General Milley's despite the China controversy. Well, the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, said uh, last week that he has confidence in the general following calls for his resignation. In other developments, observers say that Milley's supporters would be outraged if he had gone behind Biden's back. A book claims that Milley described the George Floyd riots as penny packet protests. Not quite sure what that means, but I guess we're supposed to be offended by it. A group, uh, a GOP candidate rather, slammed Benedict Milley, saying that the uh, report amounts to a coup against a sitting president. Keep in mind that report is a book um, that uh, the authors, Bob Woodward and Robert Costa, very much want to sell, whether or not they characterized accurately or mischaracterized what actually happened remains to be seen. They're not necessarily always reliable. The book is uh, due to be released this week if it hasn't already uh, been released. Well, Austin assures China's new partnership with the U.K. and uh, Australia is not aimed at anyone, namely the U.S., Rick Grinnell says the FBI wasn't duped by the Hillary-linked lawyer who's been indicted in the Durham probe. You remember that way back, the Durham probe, just now getting some new information. Well, the indictment of Perkins Coy attorney Michael Sussman by special counsel John Durham is an important development in the probe into the origins of the FBI's investigation into connections between the Trump campaign and Russia. Former director of national intelligence Rick Grinnell said on Thursday, but it's not necessarily key to the entire 
genesis of the Russia investigation. He uh, said during an appearance on Fox News primetime. Well, Grinnell, who also served as President Trump's ambassador to Germany, called the entire probe such a swamp situation and added that Sussman was simply one of the subjects of 63 transcripts released while he was DNI after uh, Durham requested them. I hope that we have a lot of time to focus on these issues going forward. The media that pushed this, I don't believe that the FBI officials were duped by an outside lawyer working with Hillary Clinton who lied about his client, Grinnell said of Sussman. A developing story. We'll try to explain it in the days ahead. In other developments, Clinton campaign lawyer Michael Sussman has been indicted for allegedly lying to the FBI during the Russia investigation. And Senate Republicans are demanding the Durham report be made public. Um, a South Carolina lawyer, Alex Murdaugh, surrendered before his bond hearing after the botched suicide plot he orchestrated. Even that is thickening. The individual who uh, allegedly was paid to facilitate his suicide says that he didn't fire a gun and he wasn't involved and didn't know about a suicide effort. So, again, that plot plot thickening. Justice Clarence Thomas blasted the media and defended the Supreme Court after the Texas abortion decision. Bill Maher tells liberal media to stop scaring people. He used some expletives, but I won't repeat them. Uh, he was uh, a bit more colorful. That's that. Uh, that's the gist of his remarks, however. Sylvester Stallone's Rocky memorabilia and other prized possessions are to be auctioned. If you have a lot of spare cash, I mean a lot of spare cash, you might gain one. American Airlines kicked a family off of their flight after their unmasked toddler had an asthma attack. Toddler. Americans are still being held hostage by the Taliban. The president's spokesman, Ned Price, claims the Biden administration pulled every lever available, but those pesky Taliban keep blocking flights with Americans. Rich Lowry says an ongoing national humiliation with new exercises in fecklessness and excuse making every day. Well, the president's approval rating continues to stink, to sink, rather. I guess both would apply. The lowest level yet, according to Reuters. Hugh Hewitt says, who would have thought that running away, abandoning allies and helpless people to the Taliban and leaving American citizens and legal permanent residents would sink a president's standing? I think it was a rhetorical question. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, coming up in the second hour of today's program, Glenn Sunshine, co-author with Jerry Trousdale of The Kingdom Unleashed. That's coming up at about a quarter after the second hour of today's program. Well, thousands of uh, immigrants who have entered the country illegally have packed in under a bridge in South Texas. Thousands of Haitian migrants who have crossed the Rio Grande since Tuesday are sleeping outdoors under a a border bridge in South Texas, creating a humanitarian emergency and a logistical challenge to U.S. agents. Uh, They describe it as unprecedented. Authorities in Del Rio say more than 8,000 migrants have arrived at the impromptu camp and they're expecting more in the coming days. The sudden influx has presented the Biden administration with a new border emergency at a time when illegal crossings have reached a 20-year high. He's uh, announced... uh, uh, through his uh, his operatives earlier in the day that Haitian refugees would be turned back, that the border with the U.S. is closed. Some are asking, why did they think they could cross into the U.S.? Well, the porous border that we've seen among some groups who are permitted to enter the country gave the impression that, well, the United States is open. Well, Ted Cruz, and there's certainly no question why the uh, 
Uh, the Haitians would come here. If you've seen the country following events there of the last couple of weeks, Ted Cruz says, I am on the ground in Del Rio, Texas tonight. As of this moment, there are 10,503 under the Del Rio International Bridge. This man-made disaster was caused by the administration. Tweet, um, he also tweeted a video of the uh, of the situation. In other news, the FAA has stopped drones from flying over the bridge where the immigrants have crowded. Apparently, they don't want the American people to see just how bad it is. John Strassel says the Democrats know the climate bill would kill the economy and Democrats' hopes for the midterm elections, but progressives are pushing this agenda with a $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. And there is some infighting within the party. Well, meanwhile, the president is working on behalf of the far left of the wing of the party uh, on this one. But the president has failed to get uh, Manchin on board thus far. Well, women account for nearly half of all new gun purchases uh, according to the story, an estimated 3.5 million women became new gun owners from January of 2019 through April of this year. About 4 million men became new gun owners over that same period. For decades, other surveys have found that around 10 to 20 percent of American gun owners were women. And with the defund the police and defend oneself, it's become more popular. The Dutch foreign minister has resigned over the Afghanistan evacuation mess, taking responsibility for their part. And what was mostly a decision made by the U.S. government, but Biden's people kept their jobs. President Biden is now taking meds from Florida. Now, let me explain. The story reminds us months ago, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida was being roundly castigated for promoting the use of, um, let me get the, the name right, Regeneron's monoclonal antibody treatment as part of his state's efforts to fight COVID-19. Well, now the president, the administration is seeing the benefits and they're seeking to ration what Florida receives from the governor DeSantis. I will fight like, well, he's going to fight hard. We'll put it that way to overcome the cruel decision to drastically reduce life-saving antibody treatments for Floridians. We've seen steep reductions in hospital admissions due to early treatment efforts. It's wrong to penalize Florida for his partisan bitterness. When pressed on this, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said, Our supply is not unlimited and we believe it should be equitable. We're not going to give a greater percentage to Florida over Oklahoma. I'm not sure the federal government gave it to Florida. That's a whole nother story. Well, the Taliban is hunting down Afghans with ties to the West. This is a continuing story and didn't just start. Jim Garrity, he uh, detailed a number of tragic stories as the Taliban steps up their reign of terror on people we left behind. Top on those lists, individuals who partnered with the United States government and those who are followers of Jesus. I hope we haven't and are not forgetting to pray for all of them. Well, clusters of Haitians under the Texas Bridge is growing, as I mentioned earlier, approaching 15,000, according to the story. Um, as they uh, keep coming, Bill Melguin um, from Fox L.A. Uh, said that the CBP sources confirm in the last 24 hours they have processed 2,100 uh, migrants in the Del Rio sector, which is usually very quiet, meaning approximately 12 to 13,000 still are at the bridge. At least two buses are taking single adult men to um, in the uh, Rio Grande Valley a sector where they're already 500 percent over capacity and um, the border patrol, border uh, workers there are completely overwhelmed. The Wall Street Journal editorial board says this. The massing of thousands of Haitians under the bridge near Del Rio, Texas, in recent days is the latest example of government failure and 
perverse incentives that are producing chaos at the border. The scenes from the area couldn't have been scripted better by immigration re- uh, um, restrictionists. Thousands of migrants crossing the Rio Grande in mass in expectation that they'll be able to claim asylum in the U.S. The thousands of Haitians fleeing desperate poverty somehow made it to Mexico, then traveled to the border, probably with the help of the cartels that control the human traffic. U.S. border agents have closed the legal Del Rio port of entry, so normal cross-border traffic essential for commerce is shut down. Some 15,000 Haitians and others are trapped in awful conditions around the Del Rio International Bridge without basic necessities. The migrants may be carrying COVID-19 and border agents are overwhelmed. Uh, Rather interestingly, many of the uh, Haitians that we're seeing now uh, fled to South America. What was it in 2010 when they had the last very serious uh, earthquake and saw this as an opportunity to make their way uh, to the United States? Um, They will be disappointed, as the announcement was made earlier today, that Haitians would not be admitted into the United States, although they are being admitted into the United States and the border is closed, although the border is not closed. Well, the Senate parliamentarian has told Democrats amnesty cannot be part of the three point five trillion dollar spending package. While Democrats previously vowed that they would pursue an alternative proposal should they disagree with the ruling, the decision from the nonpartisan Senate rules arbiter likely closes the path forward to providing legal status through the so-called budget reconciliation process, which allows the Democrats to sidestep a filibuster. With bipartisan immigration talks stalled, Democrats widely viewed the social spending package as their best chance to enact immigration reform. David Limbaugh says that they even tried is scandalous, that the parliamentarian invoked the rule of law is amazing in today's climate of disrespect for the law, but much appreciated. Mark Thiessen says anyone surprised by this doesn't understand how budget reconciliation works. And Rich Lowry points out this is self-evidently the right decision. The idea that amnesty for eight million people is primarily a fiscal measure that belongs in the reconciliation bill was always laughable laughably absurd. And the National Review reported the amnesty would cover an estimated eight million, easily uh, constituting the largest amnesty in American history. The bill has a broad definition of so-called dreamers to benefit from DACA. Illegal immigrants had to have entered the United States when they were under the age of 16, resided here since 2007. In the reconciliation bill, the standard shifted to include people who came under the age of 18 and resided here on or before January 1st of this year. Well, co-authors Woodward and Costa say the president's aides have avoided unscripted events. We knew this, but now the book adds detail from the story. They call the effect the wall a cocooning of the president, the book says, describing the effort to counter Biden's tendency to um, at times to be testy or mangle statements. Well, the administration admits killing 10 civilians in a Kabul airstrike. They originally said killed an ISIS K operative and yet not a single isis member was killed seven children and an aid worker uh, were among the dead the over the horizon approach at its worst a, a texas doctor bragged that he broke the law in texas by killing an unborn baby the washington post published his op-ed explanation or manifesto but in it one particular paragraph tells a lot about how his and many other abortionists had their worldview tragically shaped In medical school in Texas, we'd been taught that abortion was an integral part of a women's health care. When the Supreme Court issued its ruling in Roe v. Wade in 1973, recognizing abortion as a constitutional right, it enabled me to do the job I was trained to do. Mm. Bjorn Lomborg says global warming saves lives. 
Alomborg dares to reveal some very simple math that will torture some who embrace the idea that uh, global warming is always catastrophic. From the series of tweets, global warming saves 166,000 lives a year, cold deaths nine times deadlier than heat. Well, the thread comes complete with several articles from scientific journals, including one in The Lancet you might want to look up. Well, Taliban fighters are upset that they missed their chance at martyrdom as uh, the president made the takeover of the Afghan country so easy. From the story, many of my fighters are worried that they missed their chance at martyrdom in the war. This is Niviz. Uh, I tell them they needed to relax. They still have a chance to become martyrs, but this adjustment uh, will take time. An interesting worldview. And Facebook admits to being aware of the platform being used for human sex trafficking and is less concerned with the human toll that they are um, uh, with finding new users. Uh, Google removed ads from pro-life groups, the pro-life group Live Action. Google removed and blocked advertisements from the pro-life group, including ads about a medical treatment used to reverse the abortion pill and a video depicting how an unborn child develops in the womb. Apparently, that's offensive. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour and an interview with Glenn Sunshine in the second hour of today's program. Stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the next couple of segments, we're going to hear an interview with Glenn Sunshine. He's the co-author, along with Jerry Trousdale, of the book, The Kingdom Unleashed, how Jesus' first century kingdom values are transforming thousands of cultures and awakening his church. That's coming up in the next couple of segments. And we'll also uh, reflect on Constitution Day, which was technically last Friday. I was gone, but I wanted to talk a bit about it. A republic, if you can keep it. You'll recall Benjamin Franklin asked the question, uh, what uh, what do we have, a monarchy or a republic? And that uh, answer is what he uh, said in response. Well, we are uh, continuing to look at some of the day's news. Google, uh, as I mentioned in the previous hour, had removed ads of a pro-life group um, and thought that was simply fine. Um, they may have reversed themselves on that, and we'll keep you posted. But in response to the pro-life policy victories like the Texas Heartbeat Act, And an upcoming September court case asking the justices to provide a constitutional course correction to America's arbitrary and unworkable abortion jurisprudence. Pro-abortion lawmakers in Congress are advancing a uh, deceptively named piece of legislation called the Women's Health Protection Act. Now, if you're a woman in utero, it doesn't apply to you, but the radical, uh, far-reaching proposal would entrench unfettered access to abortion in federal law. Now, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and her congressional allies, as well as the media, have characterized the Women's Health Protection Act as simply codifying Roe versus Wade. Well, that's a mischaracterization that understates just how radical the proposal actually is. The act goes far beyond the already permissive regime permitted under America's existing abortion jurisprudence, uh, which may be hard to imagine. If enacted, the Women's Health Protection Act, as it's called, would endanger essentially all state-level abortion restrictions, existing state and federal conscience protection laws, and various provisions that limit taxpayer funding for abortions. Congress should reject this radical proposal, but we'll see uh, what it will 
ultimately do. Well, the Women's Health Protection Act should be rejected by Congress. It would expressly prohibit existing laws that regulate abortion and the abortion industry. The bill bans informed consent requirements, reflection periods, uh, the provision that uh, gives women the opportunity to view an image of their unborn child or listen to the child's heartbeat. In other words, connecting the life of the child in utero with the mother carrying the child. Well, the proposed federal policy would also preempt policies like the Pain-Capable Unborn Child Protection Act, which currently protects women and their unborn children in more than a dozen states from inhumane late-term abortions performed after 20 weeks. The scientific evidence suggests that a baby can feel excruciating pain during an abortion procedure performed after 20 weeks. Well, the uh, pro-life policy consensus is overlooked in this legislation. It's sort of a panic response to pro-life gains. The Women's Health Protection Act would imperil policies like the Hyde Amendment, which prevents taxpayer dollars from paying for elective abortions and federal programs like Medicaid. Over the past four decades, the Hyde Amendment has saved more than 2.4 million lives and has had bipartisan support. It would also jeopardize longstanding policies that protect conscience and religious freedom, ignoring America's proud tradition of respecting individuals and entities' right to not participate in an abortion. Well, these pro-life policies enjoy broad support across the political spectrum. A majority of Americans oppose using taxpayer dollars to fund elective abortions, including 65% of independents and 31% of Democrats, according to a January Marist poll commissioned by the Catholic organization Knights of Columbus. Well, likewise, a majority of Americans support conscience rights for individuals and entities that object to abortion. Well, states have enacted more than 500 life-protecting policies in the last decade. Congress would do well to remember that these policies are in place uh, precisely because elected representatives did what their constituents asked them to do, protect unborn human life and women's health and safety. Well, Americans broadly support policies that are uh, that the sweeping Women's Health Protection Act would disallow rather than prohibit pro-life policies where they exist. Congress should pursue policies that protect innocent unborn human lives, including those not yet born. And society should support women who face challenging or unplanned pregnancies. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court will hear a major abortion case on December 1st. Mark your calendars. This is momentous. Now, my belief is they won't overturn Roe versus Wade, but this is the closest um, that we've come in a very long time and an opportunity they could. Now, they tend to be very narrow in their focus, but we'll see what happens. Anyway, they're going to hear this major abortion case on December 1st that will give the justices an opportunity to reconsider the precedent set by the Roe, the landmark Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey decisions the court announced today. The case involves a Mississippi law, it was passed in 2018, that bans abortions after 15 weeks with limited exceptions. The law was blocked by the 5th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals as, under existing precedent, states may not ban abortions before fetal viability, which is typically around 22 weeks or later. In an uh, an unborn line dating to Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court's abortion cases have established and affirmed and reaffirm a woman's right to choose an abortion before viability. A panel of judges on the 5th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals wrote in December of 2019, states may regulate abortion procedures prior to viability so long as they do not ban abortions, the court wrote, arguing that the law at issue is a ban. Well, the case Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization asks whether all pre-viability restrictions on abortion are unconstitutional. 
Well, Mississippi is asking the justices to review the viability standard, and they argue that the rule prevents states from defending maternal health and its interest in protecting life. It is well past time for the courts to revisit the wisdom of the viability bright line rule. Mississippi Attorney General Lynn Fitch wrote in a brief filed with the justices. Well, the court agreed to hear the case in May after months of deliberation. So this will be very interesting and the arguments made for and against it will be very telling. The questions asked by the uh, justices will also be very telling. So I'm looking forward to uh, to that again. December 1st, the court will hear that case. Well, the tech giant Google has started banning live actions pro-life advertisements. The exact date of the ban is unknown, but the timing is rather interesting. Not three weeks ago, the Texas law banning abortion after six weeks of gestation went into effect. So the topic of abortion is at the forefront of the national conversation. While on the 14th of this month, Lila Rose, president and founder of Live Action, stated that Google had banned all her company's ads. Rose went to a step further by saying Google is demonstrably choosing to side with extremist pro-abortion political ideology and that Google's censorship um, uh, baldly reveals that the corporation is in the pocket of the abortion industry. Now, that's really not news. Well, on this day in history, 1873, panic sweeps the floor of the New York Stock Exchange in the wake of railroad bond defaults and bank failures. 1958, Martin Luther King Jr. is seriously wounded during a book signing in New York City's department store when he's stabbed in the chest by Isola Curry. 1962, James Meredith, a black student, is blocked from enrolling at the University of Mississippi by Democratic Governor Ross Barnett. Meredith would later be admitted. 1963, President Kennedy proposes a joint U.S.-Soviet expedition to the moon. And 1973, Billie Jean King beats Bobby Briggs in a battle of the sexes tennis match in the Houston Astrodome. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, Glenn Sunshine, The Kingdom Unleashed. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. My next guest and his co-author are authors of The Kingdom Unleashed, How Jesus' First Century Kingdom Values Are Transforming Thousands of Cultures and Awakening His Church. Jerry Trousdale and Glenn Sunshine explore God's kingdom movements. Central to every movement are the core values of the kingdom of God, which Jesus proclaimed and modeled throughout his ministry. Well, the pair spent three years researching why only a few such movements are happening in North America and in Western Europe. They identify historical and worldview issues that hinder kingdom movements in the West. Uh, he is um, Kingdom Unleashed is composed of five sections. We'll talk about them. And they point out that those of us living in the global north are observing an incre- ever increasing cascade of spiritual discouragement and tragedy in our world. While our brothers and sisters in the global south are experiencing what Jesus meant when he said that kings and prophets longed to experience the kingdom coming in such away. Mm. Well, my guest is Glenn Sunshine. He is a professor of history at Central Connecticut State University, a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and the founder and president of Every Square Inch Ministries. He is an award-winning author and has taught seminars on worldview, church history, and theology across the U.S. and in Europe and Asia. His co-author, Jerry Trousdale, um, is a, has served as a missionary among a Muslim people group in Africa. He pastored two mission-sending churches, co-founded Final Command 
Island Ministries, and since 2005 has been Director of International Ministries for New Generations. We are delighted to have uh, Glenn Sunshine join us today to talk about this remarkable book that is challenging and joyful and all of those things in between. The Kingdom Unleashed, How Jesus' First Century Kingdom Values Are Transforming Thousands of Cultures and Awakening His Church. Glenn Sunshine, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I I really appreciate it. Uh, Let's talk about what a kingdom movement is. It may be unfamiliar to some of our listeners, uh, and how does that differ from the church at large or the church uh, with a small c? Well, when when we're talking about kingdom movements, what we're talking about is a situation where the gospel is spreading virally where it is growing extremely fast, new churches are being founded, disciples are being made, and it just builds its own momentum. You make disciples who make disciples who make disciples, churches that plant churches that plant churches. Um, In order for something to be, there are a couple of different definitions of what a movement is. Um, A thousand baptisms in a short period of time, a hundred new churches in a space of, uh, again, a year or so, those kinds of things. And that's what we're seeing in a lot of the world today. We are seeing that, and as we rejoice in how the Church is growing elsewhere, we look closer to home uh, in Europe and here at home, and we wonder, why are we not seeing that kind of exponential growth here? And that's certainly one of the subjects that you uh, cover in your book. Yes, um, it turns out that when you take a look at the Church in Europe, it's really seriously in decline, and in North America, we are anything but healthy. Um, at best, you can say that the church has stagnated here. You're not seeing really significant growth at all um, in any sector of the uh, of the American church. And the reasons really have to do with a lot of things about American culture that have crept into the church and that have uh, really limited uh, our effectiveness uh, and, frankly, the Holy Spirit's work through us. Your first chapter is titled 50 Thrilling and Disturbing Years. Uh, first of all, why 50 years, and what can we be thrilled about, and what will we find most disturbing? Well, when you take a look, the, the reason why we picked 50 years is that in the last 50 years, this is the period in which we've really seen the explosion of movements around the world. Um, Every segment of the Muslim world has got movements in it. We're seeing explosive growth happening in China and India and Indonesia, all through Africa, Latin America. The statistics are absolutely staggering. It is the the gospel is growing faster now than it ever has in human history. Absolutely remarkable. But (laughs) that's the other part of the story. But the other part of the story is that it's all happening in what we used to call it the developing world. Now uh, the term of art is the global south. So when we use global south, if you're more familiar with third world, developing world, that's really what we're thinking mm-hmm. of. All of this growth is happening in that part of the world. In North America, for example, we're holding roughly steady at about 20% of the population going to church regularly on Sunday. But this is happening in large part because we're getting immigration, legal and illegal, we're getting immigration coming in from countries where church attendance is much higher. So actually, it is the immigrant population that is propping up our 20% number. And even there, if you if, if you just consider it at 20% and ignore the immigrant part of it, it's stagnant. It means that we're absolutely flat. And yet, in contrast to this, 
you're seeing this unbelievable explosion of growth everywhere else. In the first six chapters, or I should say chapter two through six of the book, you really address the reasons for this weakness of the church in the global north, the place from which much of the gospel was sent uh, into the areas that are now exploding in in terms of responding to the gospel is now so weak that, you know, missionaries are coming from some of those places hoping to have an influence uh, here. What are some of the reasons that uh, you identify in the book in these first chapters? Well, we, the first one that I would start with, which is actually the one we, we do first in the book, is a, a total lack of prayer. Everywhere where you see movements growing, there is an incredible amount of prayer going on. Um, and in fact, they will tell you that nothing happens without abundant, focused prayer. And yet, according to uh, Barna, the average American Christian prays something like four to six minutes a day, and that includes grace at meals. You know, we, frankly, we don't believe in prayer, because if we did, we'd do it more. And yet, when you look at the Global South, that's, that is the lifeblood of the movements there. Mm-hmm. Describe for so, us the contrast between our two to three, four minutes, and what's happening elsewhere where the kingdom of God is advancing. Well, if you go to West Africa, for example, um, where Jerry worked and where I have visited, the, well, I'll just read you some of what they're doing for prayer. This is their regular prayer routine. Uh, annually, they have 21 days of fasting and prayer in all churches starting on January 10th. Now, for them, a fast is one meal in the evening. Uh, monthly, one Friday a month, uh, half or a whole night of prayer. Every Wednesday or Thursday, fasting um, and prayer. Um, daily, 90 minutes of prayer meetings at 40 prayer centers in five countries. Uh, weekdays, all ministry offices and schools stop at noon for 30 minutes of midday intercession. The last day of the month, all Christ followers go out and ta- engage their neighbors with prayer. Um, and then the last three days of December are, are more Thanksgiving and prayer. This is just sort of the regular thing for them. And they have prayer centers that operate 24 hours a day, seven days a week, in three-hour shifts. People come in every three hours, and they continue prayer nonstop. Uh, This kind of thing is absolutely unheard of in the United States, with very, very few exceptions. Yeah, with a few exceptions. For what are they praying? Because my guess is some of our listeners are thinking, I have a hard time praying for five minutes. How, how, what, for what are they praying during these lengthy periods of time, corporately and, uh, and individually? What does their prayer reflect? Well, they actually use a, when there's a public prayer meeting specifically, they use a, a system that actually started in the Korean churches where they have a prayer leader who will, have a list of things that are to be prayed for, and he will say, okay, now we're going to pray for this. And then for just a couple of minutes, everybody in the room prays for that. They actually all do it out loud simultaneously, uh, which sounds like it would be chaotic, but actually it doesn't really feel that way at all. In a lot of ways, when I was there, it was sort of like a soft murmuring going on around you. But then after just a couple of minutes, they announce the next prayer topic, and then you move to that, and so on. So you go through a cycle like this um, where... You don't spend so much time on one prayer that one prayer point that your mind wanders. 
you can be focused in on it for, like I said, just a couple of minutes, and then you move on to the next. So they have all of this organized. They know what they're going to be praying for ahead of time. You know, the, the prayer leader knows what, what the different topics are going to be and then just guides the people into the, the prayer. That's one way of doing it. Um, for an American, what I would suggest is something like take the Lord's Prayer and think about what each phrase in the Lord's Prayer means, unpack it, and pray around it, or do the same with Psalms, those kinds of things. This is the way you begin to learn to pray better. This is how the early church always prayed. Yeah. They used Psalms, they used the Lord's Prayer. Um, you, you, it can help you learn to pray. It can help you um, learn to focus your mind better because you have something that you can look at to help you uh, train you in that. Yeah. Now, the average American's attention span is 8.3 seconds. Mm. So we have to train ourselves. We're going to continue our conversation in just a few moments. Again, we're talking about the book, The Kingdom Unleashed. My guest is Glenn Sunshine, and we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Glenn Sunshine, who is the co-author of The Kingdom Unleashed, How Jesus' First Century Kingdom Values Are Transforming Thousands of Cultures and Awakening his church. In the first section of the book, he deals with some thrilling developments with regard to the kingdom of God, but some disturbing years as well. In the second section, he offers five categories of spiritual malpractice, as he puts them, that includes praying small prayers to an almighty God, among other things. In the third section of the book, and I found this especially um, interesting because you focus on uh, some of the key biblical elements of movements that all kingdom movements share and that you're seeing in parts of the world where the church and the kingdom is advancing. Can you talk a bit about that? Yes, it, I think the easiest way to explain it is that the reason why movements are happening right now um, in all these other parts of the world is simply because they're following Jesus' instructions. And frankly, we aren't. Well, there's a novel idea. Yeah. So if, if you, you know, Jesus explains how to make disciples. Uh, he does this in Matthew 10 and in Luke 10, when he sends out the, the 12 and then the 72. Uh, he gives them a set of instructions for what they're supposed to do when they're out on their, their uh, preaching tours. And it turns out that in where we're seeing the, these movements happening, people are following Jesus's instructions. And, you know, they, you have to adapt them a little bit to their areas, you know, to the cultures. But overall, they're just looking at what Jesus says and figuring out, all right, how do I do that where I am? And surprise, surprise, the Holy Spirit shows up when you actually obey what Jesus told you to do. Yeah, as promised. Right. We've already talked a little bit about abundant prayer, which we sadly are not engaged in. What are some of the other elements that Jesus clearly taught that other uh, countries, cultures are uh, applying as they're following him that we might benefit from returning to in Scripture? Okay, well, what he tells them to do is to go into a village, find a person of peace. Okay, now what that means is someone who is spiritually open, who's willing to engage with you, that sort of thing. And then without going through all the details, he basically says, build a relationship with the person. This is what the, the instructions about eating whatever set in front of you. That's really, I think, the, the core of what's happening there. Because in this culture, when you're, you eat with somebody, it establishes a relationship with you. So you build a relationship with them. Through that individual, you build a relationship with the community. 
and then when you introduce the gospel, you introduce it to the entire community. You don't do individuals one, ones and twos. You're, you work through social networks. Then he tells them, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, cleanse lepers. Uh, the way I would translate that into English, if you, I don't know where your theology is in terms of miraculous stuff, but at the very least, what it's saying is show what the kingdom looks like. Show them the reality of the kingdom. Then tell them that the kingdom of heaven has come near. So it's a show-and-tell process. Uh, the gospel is, is holistic. It affects all of life. And what Jesus is doing is he's telling them, show them what the kingdom looks like in your midst, in their midst. Show them what this looks like. And, that is, and then when you're working through the person of peace, this person who's spiritually open, that's what cracks the, the, uh, uh, the community open for the gospel. I think for many of us in 21st century America, we have come to believe, I know for some young people that sharing your faith is is the wrong thing to do because it's culturally insensitive, while others are convinced that no one really wants to hear. It's a story that everyone already knows. It's a message they're familiar with, has already been rejected. And so there's a sense of defeat before we even consider carrying out what the scripture teaches, what Jesus himself taught. How do you respond uh, to those who hold to those points of view? Every time that Jesus looked out at the world around him and talked to his disciples about it, he said something to the effect of the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, or the fields are white with harvest. Jesus' eyes for the world, when he looks out at the world, he sees a world that's ripe. He sees a world that's ready. What he sees is missing are the workers. So what we need to do is develop Jesus's eyes for the world around us. You know, when you read Matthew 9, just before he sends out the, the 72, he looks at the world around him. He sees that they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. It's a good description of our world. He has compassion on them, and he knows the solution is found in the kingdom, in presenting them with the kingdom. And that's when he tells the disciples to pray for workers, because there aren't enough to match the needs of the harvest. And then the next thing he does is he sends them out. One of your chapters... No, please go ahead. Yeah, so, so the point is, when you look at what Jesus does and how Jesus sees the world, we need to develop the same way of seeing it. We need to get his vision for the world around us. One of the chapters of your book is titled, Equipping Ordinary People for the Impossible, And hearing you describe what he is calling us to, for some, it seems impossible, again, in 21st century America. And yet, um, people, regular people who are, you know, precisely what the disciples in the early church was, um, need to be equipped for impossible uh, things. Explain what you mean by that and how that equipping takes place. Well, one of the things that is, I would say, a pathology in the Western Church is we've picked up on the culture's focus on on professionalization. So we, rather than doing evangelism, we want to get somebody to come to church, and if we can get them to come to church, we'll let the pro bring them in. Uh, We subcontract spiritual development of our children to youth pastors. You know, things like this. We, we think in terms of you have to be a professional to do these things. That's not what Jesus tells us, and it's not what Paul tells us. If you read Ephesians 4, uh, Paul says God gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some pastors and teachers 
to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The job of the church leadership is to be a coaching job, a mentoring job, teaching us to go out and do the work of ministry. They're not. They, we shouldn't think of the clergy, the the church leaders, as the ministers. They're the coaches. We are the ministers because they're to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So what we need to do is to recover this idea that, you know what, we're all, you know, one of Martin Luther's great insights that every believer is a priest. We are all people who are called by God to do the work. And if you understand that, and if you understand, I would say, some very, very simple processes, things can start happening. In the final section of your book, um, you offer first steps, and there's so much more than our conversation will reflect. But um, let's talk about first steps. Where do we begin if we want to follow Jesus' words in in building the kingdom and being a part of the kingdom, beginning, of course, with prayer? What are some of the other first steps that we should consider? Well, one of the, uh, if at all possible, it's nice to be able to visit a place to see movements in action. But um, beyond that, there's a very simple approach that's, that we use, uh, that's used really in movements around the world called the Discovery Bible Study that can be used uh, with believers or non-believers. Start, start learning how to do a Discovery Bible Study. It's very, very simple. Um, you can even just Google it, and you'll find the basic questions. They can be applied to any passage of Scripture. There are scripture sets that you can use for all kinds of different needs with Discovery Bible Studies or with unbelievers. So learn, learn about that. Um, find people who are, uh, who are engaged in movements. There are plenty of people out there, even in the United States, there are quite a number of people who are available to coach, to mentor, to teach seminars, things like that. So um, these are a couple of the the core things that I would I would say. And then when we talk about, you know, the show and tell of the gospel, uh, there's a concept that they use in the Global South that they call access ministries. An access ministry is simply a ministry that creates an opening where you can build relationships with people and uh, find those communities where you can share the gospel. I wish we had more time to talk, but I would add to that list reading The Kingdom Unleashed uh, to get a, a clear idea of some of the things that are happening in the world right now. Glenn Sunshine, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, our final segment. Well, as I mentioned at the very start of today's program, Friday was Constitution Day. I'm reminded of the phrase, a republic if you can keep it. And that's still an open question here in the 21st century. Done the 17th day of September in the year of our Lord, 1787. This is the last line of the U.S. Constitution. Well, one of the signers of the Constitution, James McHenry, noted in his diary, American Historical Review from 1906, that after Ben Franklin left the Constitutional Convention, he was asked by Mrs. Elizabeth Powell of Philadelphia. Well, doctor, what have we got? A republic or a monarchy? Franklin replied, a republic if you can keep it. Well, Webster's 1828 dictionary defined republic as an exercise of the sovereign power is lodged in representatives elected by the people. 
To help explain, democracy has come to have two definitions. One is the general concept of people ruling themselves. The other is an actual system of government. Well, as an actual system of government, a democracy is where the people are king ruling directly, whereas a republic is where the people are king ruling through their representatives. We live in a constitutional republic. Well, as an actual system of government, a democracy only successfully worked on a small basis, like a Greek city-state, where every citizen went to the marketplace every day to discuss politics. Politics is from the Greek word polis, which means the business of the city. The same word translated into Latin is civics. Well, citizen is also contracted with subject. Kings have subjects who are subjected to their will. The will of the king. Citizen is a Greek word which means co-ruler or co-sovereign, co-king, if you will. Citizens participate in ruling themselves. A democracy is a system of government. It's limited in size as one um, once a city grows so large that citizens can't come to make the everyday uh, decisions in the market. Control is transferred to those who carry news of what's being discussed, which can be slanted one way or another. Republics can grow larger as citizens spend their time taking care of their families and farms and representatives go to into their place to the market every day to discuss politics. We don't have that kind of close association, but you get the general idea. A constitutional republic is where the representatives are limited by a set of rules approved by the citizens. That's us. Theodore Roosevelt stated in October of 1903, in no other place and at no other time has the experiment of government of the people, by the people, for the people, been tried on so vast a scale as here in our own country. Americans pledged allegiance to the flag and to the republic for which it stands. That republic means I take some responsibility in what's going to happen here where I live amongst my neighbors. Citizens are basically pledging allegiance to being in charge of themselves, exercising their authority through representatives they pick. When someone protests the flag, what they are saying is, I no longer want to be king. I protest this system where the people rule themselves. In the Roman Republic, representatives were hereditary positions. The American Republic is, well, a hybrid where representatives are democratically elected. Yale President Ezra Stiles stated back in 1788, most states of all ages have been founded in rapacity, usurpation and injustice. All the forms of civil polity, government systems, have been tried by mankind except one. And that seems to have been reserved in Providence to be realized in America. John Jay, who was the first Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, stated in September of 1777, the Americans are the first people whom heaven have favored with an opportunity of deliberating upon and choosing the forms of government under which they shall live. All other constitutions have derived their existence from violence or accidental circumstances. Ronald Reagan stated in 1961, he of course was not president at that time, in this country of ours, look, uh, took place the greatest revolution that has ever taken place in the world's history. Every other revolution simply exchanged one set of rules for another, or rather rulers for another. Declaration signers, John, uh, signer singular, John Wilson, who also signed the Constitution and was appointed to the Supreme Court by George Washington, remarked at Pennsylvania's ratifying convention, November 26, 1787, governments in general have been the result of force, of fraud and accident. 
After a period of 6,000 years has elapsed since the creation, the United States exhibits uh, to the world the first instance of a nation assembling voluntarily and deciding calmly concerning that system of government under which they would wish that they and their posterity should live. John Adams wrote in his notes on canon and federal law of 1765, I always consider the settlement of America with reverence as the opening of a grand scene and design in Providence for the illumination of the ignorant and the emancipation of the slavish part of mankind all over the earth. Now, it took us a while to get there, but we did eventually get there based on principles that were enunciated in the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. In 1802, Daniel Webster stated in a 4th of July oration, the history of the world is before us. The civil, the social, the Christian virtues are requisite to render us worthy the Constitution, uh, the continuation of that government, which is the freest on earth. Well, after the U.S. Constitution was written, it needed to be ratified by nine states in order to go into effect. Eight states had ratified it, and New Hampshire was in line to be the ninth. But disagreements caused it to stall. The governor of New Hampshire declared a day of fasting. Imagine that. New Hampshire reconvened its ratifying convention in June of 1788. Harvard President Reverend Samuel Langdon, and yeah, you heard me right, Harvard Reverend, gave an address which was instrumental in convincing the delegates to ratify the Constitution. The Portsmouth Daily Evening Times, January 1st, 1891, acknowledged Reverend Samuel Langdon's influence saying by his voice and example, he contributed more perhaps than any other man to the favorable action of that body. Well, Langsden's address was titled A Republic of the Israelites, an example to the American state, June 5th, 1788. In it, he made some rather uh, profound statements we don't have time to go into today, but it is an interesting uh, history. He concluded in his remarks, it was a long time after the law of Moses was given before the rest of the world knew anything of the government by law. It was 600 years after Moses before a uh, Grecian republics received a very imperfect code of laws from uh, their source. It was about 500 years from the first founding of the celebrated Roman Empire before the first laws of that empire. After his address, New Hampshire's delegates, they voted to ratify the U.S. Constitution, thus putting it into effect. Well, there's much more that could be said, but I will quote Alexander Hamilton, who wrote the wrote of the Constitution in his letters of Caesar, 1787. Whether the new Constitution is adopted will prove adequate to such desirable ends. Time, the mother of events, will show. For my own part, I sincerely esteem it a system which, without the finger of God, never could have been suggested and agreed upon by such a diversity of interests. Well, it's interesting to look back on some of the events that surrounded the ratification of the Constitution that stands today in it, recognizing that it was not an, a perfect document. They um, designed a means by which one could um, amend the Constitution. We have all kinds of lawmakers today who would like to go around that process because it requires the people who govern this republic to actually weigh in to ratify these kinds of changes. Nonetheless, it is a remarkable document. And this last Friday was the 234th anniversary of its ratification, Constitution Day. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. 
And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.